Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. This is Choices Not Chances podcast with Ryan and Matt. I'm your co-host, Matthew Charette. Sitting next to me is Ryan Rogers. Ryan. All right, Yogi, thanks for being on. After a, uh, after a while of trying to set it up, I appreciate it. Happy to be here, brother. Yeah, man. Yeah. So, uh, kind of a long story short, um, we connected through Ryan Fugit on Combat Stories. So, shout out there. Um, and I found your uh, your story extremely interesting. As I, you know, as I watched there, I'd, I mean not to give you the same interview, but I do want to go into some of the different aspects of, uh, especially your career and and flying for different services. I'd like to poke at that a little bit, um, and then. Uh, you know, as we were talking offline, talk a lot more, you know, towards the back half about transition and what guys can expect in that kind of, uh, that kind of talk. But before we get started, why, you know, pointed questions in the beginning, where you come from, who you come from, uh, kind of pecking order and your culture, uh, of life kind of growing up in the younger years. Fire away. All right. Well, let's start. Uh, where do you come from? I was born and raised in New York City. I mean, I'm sure you can tell that for the minute I opened my mouth. Um, born and raised in Manhattan. Um, you know, grew up on the bricks, single mom, single working mom. I like to joke I was born with a silver spoon, but it got yanked. You know, um, <laughs> my dad was doing pretty well. Um, uh, he was old, he was older, uh, so he was 66 when I was born. Uh, he died when I was six. Um, and long, long story short, you know, back in, in those days, you know, that they basically, uh, the vultures came in and picked away at the uh, estate, you know, what he had left. And, and he had a few bucks left that he, he left my mom and myself, but, um, you know, my mom didn't have the best lawyers, so that got chipped away. So, you know, went from one sort of lifestyle, you know, we lived in Europe a little bit when I was a kid, I actually spoke French you know, things like okay. that. Went to school in Paris, like for the first grade, then came back to the States. He died. And then, you know, it all changed. My mom ended up having to go back to work as a secretary. And I started going to public school. I'm a public school kid all through high school. Um, did go to when I went to an art oriented high school because I could draw, you know, I like drawing. And, and I mean, I basically grew up drawing airplanes, and World War II battle scenes and stuff. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm a public school kid, grew up, you know, basically single working mom, you know, like a lot of guys <laughs> in our former Absolutely. life, you know, yeah, yeah. and um, was, a, was a little bit of a, I straddled the line between being a good kid and a not so good kid. Um, you know, uh, definitely did some things growing up that I regret or wouldn't advise doing when, um, and, 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 um, but was always interested in the military. And I don't come from a military family at all. Um, right. Now, where, know, did, where I, if, if I might interject, where would be the first, like, what's the first memory of, of service, not even a flying, of, of just, I were you born with have, this? I don't have a distinct memory. 
I do have a distinct decision that I was going to be a Marine. That I can tell you specifically, but it's, I just was always fascinated with airplanes. I mean, uh, there's a picture of me. I think I was all of three standing in a bathtub, bubble bath, holding an airplane. Um, you know, uh, you, you know, my mom's brother served in World War II, my uncles, you know, but they were like everyone else. They did their thing and came back. My mm -hmm. one uncle was in the Navy. He was a gunner on those merchant ships, the convoys. Mm -hmm. His claim to fame is his gun crew shot down an American aircraft. <laughs> and they brought the pilot on board and the guy was pissed. And then my other uncle was a paratrooper, but he got injured in a training accident, actually took a round to the lung. Mm -hmm. And so he never got overseas. But, um, you know, they did their thing and went back to their lives. And honestly, you know, growing up, my, I have an older brother, but he was out of the house. He's 11 years older than me, so he was out of the house at 17. Mm -hmm. He missed the Vietnam thing because he was, you know, uh, taking, you know, I, he got a deferment for one reason or another. I'm not really sure why, you know, um, and, uh, you know, to be quite honest, you know, my mom was, I guess, a typical Jewish mom. She wanted a doctor or a lawyer. I just wasn't having it. And I was just always interested in the military. But at about nine years old, I saw the Sands of Iwo Jima. I know every Marine out there is going to think this is cliche, and it is. I saw the Sands of Iwo Jima, right? Every, everybody in the Marine Corps scene, right? Mm -hmm. There's a scene at the end, the last scene, uh, you know, uh, John Wayne's character, Sergeant Stryker, gets taken out. They read his letter to his son, the famous actor at the time, John Agar, reads the letter. And then he gets up and he goes, all right, let's get back in the war. And then, you know, they're supposed to be on Suribachi and they walk to the Marine Corps him. They walk down the smoke. And I remember as a nine-year-old kid, I, and honestly, this is exactly what went through my head. I don't know who these motherfuckers are, <laughs> but I'm about that. Mm -hmm. And from that day on, I was pretty focused on being a Marine. Um, then I got into, I could make the nexus between being a Marine pilot Started reading everything I could about naval aviation, marine aviation. No, all I did was read books and draw airplanes. You know, social media lets us connect with people we knew 30 and 40 years ago. And guys are like, man, all I remember you was drawing these epic air battles. Hmm. And by the time I was like 10, I knew every World War II aircraft. You know, I mean, I was, and I'm still a World War II buff. You know, went to Normandy last year. I mean, just, nice. I eat that stuff up. But, and I was a history major, so... But um, I, I don't know, you know, from that point on, I was focused on the Marine Corps. But growing up the way I did, my mom was working two jobs at some points. I was hanging out. I knew I wanted to be a Marine officer. Uh, there was a Marine recruiting station, 86 in Lex, been gone for decades. Uh, you know, I, went, I first went in there, I was like 15, hung around there talking to them. You know, all the recruiters had been to Vietnam. And they were like, I was a skinny, scrawny little son of a bitch, too, mm -hmm. you know. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, they were like, well, you don't look like much, son, but maybe it'll happen. I don't we'll know. See. You know. And I just listened to him. <laughs> I just listened to him talk to the other to the other guys. And they, they, what I liked is they didn't even then I remember they didn't bullshit. They were like, hey, I'm not going to bullshit, you know, because people spoke different than they, they talked in norm. They were like, hey, I'm not going to bullshit you guys. It's going to suck and they're going to beat the living shit out of you and blah, 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 but it'll all be worth it in the end. And, you know, the majority of guys joining were inner city kids. You know, they weren't, you know, a few softies like me mixed in, but most of them were, were hard anyway. And then um, 
I got to college, but I still wasn't very polished. You know, I was still a D's, them's, and those guys. And it was time for me to walk in to get in the Marine officer program. You know, I'd done all the research. I'd done it. The Marine officer selection office was on the uh, West 20s in New York. I walk in there. I mean, I'm an idiot. I, I think I had a, a wife beater on when I walked in. Oh, like, boy. <laughs> I, I mean, I walked in. And, uh, you know, I was like, yeah, you know, I, I'm interested in joining this program and blah, 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 blah. And um, there was a major there. He was a Mustang, nice. right? Ribbons up to here, you know. And then there was some gunnery sergeant out of a movie, bald, big, ribbons up to here. Looking at, well, first of all, he looked at me like I was something off the bottom of his shoe. Like, yeah. That, <laughs> you know. Long story short, I give my spiel. The major brings me in his office and he goes, look, I'm not even going to entertain you applying for this program right now. He goes, there is an image we want of someone who's going to be a Marine Corps officer and you ain't it. He goes, mm -hmm. so, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but, and he's basically like, I'll give you two options. He goes, you can join the Marines reserves because I know you're in college, which I suggest you do. He goes, or come back in a year and know how to present yourself. That's all he said. He didn't say, wow. do this ABC. He just come back here in a year and know how to present yourself, right? I was kind of really focused on the officer thing, so I didn't want to do the reserve thing. And I, right, wrong, or indifferent, I just didn't want to do it, right? Mm -hmm. So, and this is before the internet. This is 1980, right? 80, 81 time frame. So I do all the research of how to make a good impression. You know, I, I went to the library, I read books, you know, how to influence, how to make friends and influence people. I asked friends of my mom's who were business people. I learned that I needed to work on my vocabulary and how to present myself a little better. You know, when you're going to make a good impression, like I probably should have worn a polo shirt, and khaki pants, and, mm -hmm. you know, all those things. And I spent the next year learning that. Now, was anybody, anybody in your support system encouraging this and helping with this? It was very neutral. My mom hoped I'd grow out of it. Eventually, she got on board. And I'll tell you a funny story as we get, get into this a little later. But And she introduced me to people. And, see the, and part of it, I'm not blaming her, but like she dated a guy who'd been a Marine aviator. And he was telling me all these stories like when I'm 12. Mm. And I'm like, wait, they pay you for this? Yeah. You know, See, that I mean, was my I, question. Somebody, there was somebody impressionable that was a Marine. You, yeah. You I talked before, Marines, but I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just, you, you meet guys who've been Marines all through your life, like cops, my doorman in my building, because we lived in a doorman building for a while. He'd been a Marine in Korea, Vinny. He, you know, I, you know, and, and I was just focused on it. So when any, whenever I found out somebody was a Marine, I would pester the shit out, you know, about it. You know, I, I, and, but from a family perspective, no discouragement, just neutral. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And so, and as far as, you know, to be honest, my mom was working trying to keep a roof over our head. Like, she didn't have a lot of time. Yeah. You know, I mean, we can go back to like, you know, I used to get in trouble all that. I got arrested. She came to top, told me, beat the shit out of me. She's like, good. Cause she was like, I have a report card from eighth grade where her, parent response was please help you know because i was i was out of you know i was just a problem so yeah, yeah yeah you know and she was busy so 
Um, she couldn't help me. It's not that she wouldn't. It's that she was busy trying to, you know, keep us above water, for lack mm, of a better mm, thing. Mm -hmm. So I learned all this stuff. And again, I, what I learned about this was at the time when he told me that, I was that was like the worst thing in my life. Like I saw all my dreams evaporating before me. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. but you know how something you think is horrible turns out to be one of the best things that ever happens happened to you? Well, that is one of those seminal moments for me because I learned that at least I if I'm gonna make an impression, I have to be a certain way. Yeah. You know, I didn't go, Oh, I'm not that guy, I don't want to pretend I'm some, you know. Uh, rich kid college boy. I wasn't like that. I was like, okay, this is what it takes. And then I started meeting people, business people, guys who never finished high school, but were very successful. And they're like, man, it's all about that impression. Mm -hmm. You know, friends of my mom's, you know, I have to say, you know, my mom was a single mom. She dated. And I mean, she dated everybody from gangsters, like the FBI was at my house to, you know, wealthy guys. She was an attractive woman. And and, um, you know, but it allowed me to interact with some interesting people that looking back on it, I learned some things. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went back a year later and was miraculously accepted in the Marine Corps platoon leaders class program. So that's when I made my second big mistake. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> they give you the option of going one 10 week officer candidate school class, or you could split it up into two six weeks, two summers. And I took that option because in my mind, I was like, well, I'll have half the summer to go to the beach. Yeah, yeah. Do, 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 right. So I go to the first six weeks. And for the next year, I'm in just anxiety about having to go back. Right. <laughs> uh, and I couldn't quit because I talked so much shit about being a Marine that there was no way I could quit. Like, that's what got me through OCS was like, I can break my leg. Because you can quit OCS after three weeks. You can say this ain't for me. And mm -hmm. a lot mm -hmm. of guys do that. I was like, I can never do that. I talk too much shit, right? I'll never be able to go back to the neighborhood with any shred of dignity. <laughs> so I'd be like, well, if I break my leg on the yoke course, that's fine. But I couldn't. So I so for my between my junior and senior year, my junior year, now I'm freaking out having to go back. And uh, so from my also, six of us started and only two of us went back the second summer. So oh, wow. I remember the day before I had to go back for my second summer, I was in the back of my buddy's motorcycle. He's showing me his new motorcycle. We're driving around the streets in New York. And I was so freaked out about it. We stopped at a light. I just leaned over and threw up. <laughs> I was just freaking out about going back. <laughs> oh, man. And, now, uh, now why? Was, was, uh, was the first six weeks... Like imagine just miserable or twice. like imagine if you just had to go to Paris Island and we got to come back next year and do the whole thing. Yeah, it'd be horrible. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know what I mean? I mean, even if you do good, you, it's like mm. you got no grace. Like you like it was called PLC junior PLC senior. Like they didn't go hey, OK, you guys know the routine. Just, get, you know, it was like get off the get off the bus, line up. Same thing. Oh, wow. You know, OK. Same, you know, out of all. And it's funny for me. I, I don't know why. The most memorable thing about all those times was getting your sea bag and dumping your shit out <laughs> and going through every item in the sea bag, right? And and you know this, it's hot, right? You just got your head shaved. You're wearing a new skibby shirt right out of the box, right? Right out of the and mm -hmm. sweat 
coming down, you know, the sweat, your head stings, the sweat's pulled in your back. You're, and it's like, in your right hand, hold up one wet belt. Yeah. So there's your two. <laughs> 39 guys hold it up in their right hand. Well, two guys hold it up in their left hand. Oh, yeah. So you know what's coming next, bends and thrusts. I, you know, and again, some guys take to military life like a fish to water. I was not that guy. <laughs> and they tell you to try to be neutral. And, you know, the minute I open my mouth, so <laughs> I, I couldn't be the gray man, right? Yeah. They kind of focused in on me because I was the Yankee. And, and uh, I thought my name was just beginning. Like, that's what I thought my name was because they would just walk up to me out of nowhere. Whatever we were doing. One drill instructor or another would just walk up to me and go, Dorellis, just begin and walk away. So I just needed to be new pens and thrusts. Like, I literally, like, and I've met guys. It's funny. I've met guys. I met one guy, literally random. He's like, we're talking about OCS. And he's like, oh, yeah, I was in golf company. And I was like, oh, I was in hotel company. And we saw talking, and I introduced, I introduced myself, and he goes, Dorellis. He goes, we used to wonder who you were, dude, because we'd hear your name being screamed from the other squad bay, and we'd be like, who is that poor bastard? Because <laughs> you know, I was just like... So oh, man. I made it through, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't take... I just wouldn't quit. Like, I was middle-of-the-road guy, maybe even lower half of the class, and peer reviews and everything. I, You know, I, I could do the PT, no problem. I, I just wasn't like, I just didn't take to it like a fish out of water. You know, land nav was a disaster for me. You know, um, uh, I remember one time, you know, just being out in the woods, you know, it just, it, it was pretty foreign to me. I've been camping two times in my yeah, whole yeah. life, you know, and. Um, now, did you so, have a flight contract? I did. Oh, and, you did. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah I did, but. It, it, it doesn't matter, you know, you're still, you still got to yeah, 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 you know, and um, I was pretty good, you know, expert on the range, you know, um, but uh, it, 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 again, it, it, it's the experience, you know, but having to do it twice, but having to go back that second time, you know, uh, was a little rough, but I'm glad I did, you know, um, I spent a relatively short time in the Marine Corps, but I'll tell you that as I get older, I just turned 62, um, I, it, it becomes more and more valuable to me because it was such a transformative experience for me mm-hmm, from sort mm-hmm. of a relatively spoiled, not that my mom indulged me, it's just she was working, so I was kind of left to my own device, you yeah, know, and I yeah. was a little cocky, thought I was a tough guy from New York. And then, you know, my all my drill instructors have been to Vietnam, you know, and and you realize you're not really that tough and this is yeah. your environment. There's other dudes there who are real studs at everything. And um, it was just a really good learning experience for me. And it was the most valuable, it'll, it'll go down as one of the most valuable experiences of my life. And like anybody else, you know, the, the title Marine is important to me. Um, I'm getting new ink, going over some old ink that I had as a yes. kid and putting new stuff. And I have my Naval aviator wings. I'm Put an H60 in the green feet, but I'm like, an EGA's got to be in there somewhere. And somewhere, I'm like, somehow. Right, like, it's just, it, 
it's it's a very difficult thing to articulate, but earning the title Marine is a very special thing. Mm. To me anyway, and to mm. other no, Marines, everybody. You know, and um and it, it any success I've had and you know, I, I, I I'd say I'm a moderately successful guy, but I mean anything I did well in the military, the things I was able to do in the Air Force later on. Mm-hmm. We're all because of the values and principles instilled in me in the Marine Corps, especially on the leadership side, especially mm-hmm. when it comes mm-hmm. to taking care of my people. I was I was well known for that. Uh, you know, um, my enlisted guys trusted me and they knew I had their best interest. And, um, uh, you know, I was always take care of them first. They mm-hmm. eat first. They do this. And I'm not slamming the Air Force. They just don't teach it at the same level because a lot of Air Force officers just aren't going to have that level of responsibility that, let's say, an Army or, or a Marine officer is going to have, or a Naval officer. Yeah. Na- you know, the Navy, it's just a different sort of organizational uh, map, you know, where the Army, the Navy, Marine, Marine Corps sort of similar as a junior officer. You'll have anywhere from 10 to 30 people that work for you. Won't be that way in the Air Force. So, mm-hmm. you know, and so those things I learned in the Marine Corps helped me down the road, both in the Navy, the Air Force, you know, in the Army, all those things. And and it it'll it it means more to me. It always meant something to me, but surprisingly, it means more and more the further I get away from it. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely something. It's definitely something for me that I'm proud of, that I'll always be proud of, and I'll wear that ink with with, with honor and uh, with pride. Um, and, you know, and I don't know how other people feel about this, but what I think I don't want to find let myself do is I don't want to ever let myself be defined by the time that I spent in uniform. No, that my, that me, time me. is amazing time. It's great time. It's times of our lives and it's pride and it's honor and it was honorable. But I try to warn guys, like, especially guys that are still in, if if like that's the if that's the biggest chapter in your book was that chapter or those chapters, you gotta like just like what we we're talking about uh, offline, that purpose that comes. Like, like, cause if you, if you derive all your purpose from service and from your service to whatever branch you're in, well, when that service ends and it will end for all of us, it ends some, 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 some of us a little shorter in your case, you got to serve a long time, but still when it ends, you're still going to have to deal with that. You know what I mean? Yes, so. but, and, and, and you bring up a good point, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that's uh, exclusive to the military No, I don't say, because and I think in Western society, we're often defined by what our job is, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And even things that, you know, whether it's a lawyer, whether it's a bank, <laughs> you know, whether I'm, I'm a stockbroker, I'm a commodities trader, you know, yeah, all yeah. these things. So, um, unfortunately, we, we, we do let what we do define us. And then when you combine that with the uh, intense experience that going to war is... You, uh, it, it is difficult. And yeah. yes, yeah. Uh, again, what we talked about earlier, if if there was sort of a way to tell people while they're in or even before they get in that this is going to be a huge experience in your life, whether you stay four years or 40 years, and it's going to be important, and especially if you have the opportunity to serve in combat. So then, but 
you know, the caution that would be, it cannot define. And, um, you know, I suffered from that, but again, I work with a lot of athletes. Um, they go through the same thing when they leave their respective sports, you know? Yeah. And, and so, uh, at, at the high level era and in Vegas, it's very fighter heavy. So mm -hmm, I, I'm mm -hmm. friends and work with a lot of fighters in my organization that are in it or are coaches. And, you know, when they stop fighting, you know, unfortunately I lost a friend to, he took his own life because he never adjusted to his not being a professional fighter. And, um, so I, I think, yeah, I, think uh, I think we wear it like it becomes an identity, right? And then yeah, once, and once that's tough, your identity. But I don't know how to combat that. You know, I don't know. I think you just got to warn people that this is going to be something you're going to have to deal with. And then you have to sort of have a mental plan of, okay, this is over. What's now the what? new identity? And What's then, the right, new purpose? And then think yep. about what, what, the, what, what that is. But, you know, specific to the Marine Corps, I don't, I'm not, because I, I didn't do anything in the Marine Corps. You know, and that's a regret of mine. I didn't fight in the Marine Corps. I didn't even get to go to flight school in the Marine Corps. So I didn't achieve any of the things I wanted in the Marine Corps. But the Marine Corps and the title Marine just, you know, it was the first time I ever had to push myself. It's the mm -hmm. first time I had to run and where I had to decide, well, I'm going to keep running until I pass out because I'm not going to let this guy call me a pussy or I don't want, or you don't want to in some sick odd way disappoint your drill instructor. They almost become, sure this sort of mentor father figure in this sort of weird way, even though they're crushing your skull at every opportunity. Right. Hmm. And so you don't want to, so you learn to push yourself. You learn not to be selfish. You, you know, for me, I was a relatively selfish kid. Yeah. You know? And um, so I learned about those things. I learned that the Marine Corps is not about you. It's about the organization. It's about, all those things, and they're very cliche. I mean, I, I, I don't have to tell you them. And, and I'm sure 90% of the people you have on the show say that the same thing. I mean, all those values and principles that are instilled in you, that aren't innately in all of us, and then that sort of you transform. And then later in life, you, you realize that you've been using those things in everything. Mm -hmm. and, and that it really is valuable. And then, I think, and I think another thing, other I think another big thing that the Marine Corps is, just so good about and it's just the way we're structured right but um when you become a marine even on the listed side you become a marine you begin leading people almost yeah. immediately like you're leading yourself but at the young ripe age of 19 and a half or 20 you're leading a team now you're responsible for three other lives at least and in in a helicopter same situation you're you're responsible for that crew almost immediately and we can talk about that moving on but the Marine Corps does a great job of saying, no, you're going to lead. That's what you're here for. No, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. That, that's what sets the American military apart is that um, even young junior enlisted people are empowered to say, hey, you're, if you might have, you might be the guy in charge before you know it and mm -hmm. be, be able to deal with it and, and make a decision. And, you know, our adversaries, you know, like I said, I'm a little bit of a military and a history geek. So, you know, the Russians, there's no autonomy in a Russian platoon. Mm -mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They're, you know, their leadership, and if their leadership gets whacked, now it's personality-based, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Where, you're right, you got a Lance Corporal leading a, 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 you know, a fire team, right? Now, if you're at, if, if you're at a certain level, um, if you're at a certain level, 
what the heck is going on? My phone is freaking out. That's freaky to me. No worries. Me. No worries. My phone just started going off. That's so weird. I, I think I put it on my uh, on my printer. I think the printer moved and set it off. But oh, no worries. Either that or some weird shit going on in my <laughs> But um, you know, so you know, at a very young age. You know, and you can go, well, it's a fire team. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal if you're Lance Corporal Jones and these are your three boys. Then you take it up to the E5 who's got the squad. And then you've got the platoon sergeant and you've got the lieutenant who's oh, yeah. 22 years old and out of school. And he's got a rifle platoon. And if he's smart, he listens to his platoon sergeant and they figure it out. And then mm. he comes, you know, so, and, and the, you know. But they're always not, leading. There's always yeah, somebody, you know, from a young age. Corps. The Army does the same thing and the. The Navy does the same thing, and 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 the Air Force to an extent, the Coasties do it. But I mean, it's just the res- the level of responsibility. The average person doesn't understand. Like, fact, I, I'm willing to guess the average person doesn't understand. And I read your book, and it was an awesome book. Oh, thank you. What you Appreciate did, that. what you did, and the level of responsibility you had at a relatively young age. In arguably the most intense experience most human beings could have, right? So you you've demonstrated already at a young age that it takes people 20, 30, 40 years to get, or they never get to it because maybe they're a supervisor, a manager, a district manager, area manager in a corporation. You're still not worried about people's lives. Mm-hmm. You're still not, you know, you, you still, you're not as invested as, as it is, you know, and I, I read it in your book. You went to sleep at night worrying about your boys. You went yeah. to sleep at night. You woke up worrying about your boys. You know, blah, blah, blah. The, you know, no one else does that. So it's such a unique, uniquely unique experience that, and I, again, I think that, you know, adds to why we have so much trouble down the line. It's because, you know, no one gets it but another guy who's been through, you know, and, and the reason it's harder now in these last few wars is because percentage wise we have sort of a warrior class in America, you know, less than 1% of people serve, you know, you look at world war two, but go, oh, well, we didn't have these problems in world war two. I'm like, that's because when people bought their first town in the suburbs on long Island, if there were 10 houses, nine guys served in world war two. So when you had your barbecue, you're talking mm, to your neighbors. Good point. This guy was on a USS ship. This guy was at Normandy. This guy was at Iwo. This guy jumped into Holland. This guy was at the Battle of the Bulge. This guy flew 77 missions over Germany. Whatever. Everybody did. Right? Maybe even the So guy there was some relatability and some empathy, right. you're so, saying? Well, because everybody got the... When they had the beer, they talked their stuff out. Yeah. And they talked about the things that we don't get to talk about because regular people don't want to hear right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but at the barbecue if you're a world war ii veteran you talked about all the horrible things you talked about losing friends you talked about liberating concentration camps you talked about seeing guys smoked by flamethrowers you talk about how marines on iwo jima will pull the gold teeth out of japanese <laughs> all the crazy shit that people go oh my god that's horrible that's this and and it is horrible, but people have no, the average person has no, because I'm no lover of humanity mm-hmm. at all, right? So the average person does not understand a level of violence and depravity 
that exists in the world. No, that's well, the average right? person in our country. Yeah, I agree. Right. So, so, you know, they complain about nonsense and, you know, we can go in and, and things, but they don't understand the, the level of violence and depravity that's just out there. And so the question you know, is, the question us, is, is that, is that not a testament to how free we are as a nation? To the fact that our people don't even know that it is real. And I used to say that was a great thing and a beautiful thing. And the the older I get and maybe the more um, wobbly the world looks to me, um, I don't know that's a good thing anymore. I don't know that we haven't gotten completely removed and because now it's coming for, you know, military culture, you know, is in, is in uh, sights of some of these people. And it's like, well, you know, like maybe you do need another tragedy to wake you up and make you remember I, what I, I, one I, man I will do to another man. No, I, I agree, Ryan. I mean, I think. And I don't like I don't saying want, that, but. I don't want another tragedy. I don't want it. But we're to the point now where we're so we're just we've got it so good that we just pick at everything. And I'm like, you know, obviously, like all veterans. I don't want the military fucked with, for lack of a better term, because our job is to be lethal, period, mm, end of story. Mm-hmm. To be the most lethal, deadliest fighting force on the face of the earth so that any adversary knows we'll crush them. You know, and that's the way it needs to be. But that's, yeah, I think it's good that the average person doesn't worry about it. But on the other hand, there's a, a cost to that, is that we deal with these morons talking about stuff and you're like what what are you talking about like in other countries they'll throw you off a fucking roof mm-hmm. like it doesn't make us any shit. more lethal some of the things that we're distracted with you know and and i mean so it it's yeah we live in a great society a free country and it's great but we are sheltered from the rest of the world by two oceans friends to the north that are pretty calm friends to the south you know, calm enough if we're not careful we're going to run into problems we're having there but they're not adversaries they're not enemies actively looking to hurt us mm, right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so we don't think these people are bad actors out there we forget quickly the tragedies that can happen uh, I think that's key right there and, we forget quickly and so we complain and worry about things that are silly but the thing about it is, is, you know, getting back to what I was saying earlier is that you and I could sit down and talk about things and we can get as gruesome as we want and it probably won't affect us very much. We'll sit and share a cocktail and right. But I've had people ask me stuff and I, and I'm, you know, as an, as a, as a helo guy, I, I can't say I've seen, I've seen the aftermath, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, of what mm-hmm. you see, you know, I was the guy carrying the aftermath, but you know, I people ask me and I tell them and you can see their eyes glaze over and they look at you like you've got a cyclops eye in the middle of your head. And they, you know, within a minute or less, they, they're tuned out because they can't wrap their heads around, right? Yeah. And that, that, I think, is one of the psychological problems, you know, adds to some of the issues veterans have, right? Where we could get together, you know, if you came, if you're in Vegas and I bring you to my uh, merging vets and player group, and you, you go to one of our uh, huddle sessions that we have, and sometimes they get heavy, you're going to relate. You just go, okay, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm, you know what mm-hmm, I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, there were times where I thought I was literally insane. 
I'm like, I'm insane. And if I reveal the way I'm thinking to anyone, they're going to lock me up and throw away the key until I found out somebody else thought like me. Yeah. And, and I have a very specific story about that uh, related to being at Bethesda Naval Hospital with a, a, a buddy of mine who was shot down and, and subsequently passed away. But, but, um, so, you know, the veteran experience after World War II is they had each other to talk to. And when they had their barbecues, they talked about stuff. It was just normal. The wives sat around and chatted about whatever. The men talked about, this happened to me over Germany. This happened, oh, shit, I remember this. I'm evil. This is the Battle of Bulge. Uh, my ship got shot out from under me. You know, all the crazy experiences that people had. So they talked about it, right? Well, in these later wars, Korea, Vietnam, the two Middle East wars, 20 years of war, 20 years of war. And you and I can walk out in the street and walk 10 blocks without maybe meet one vet. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so you could feel isolated and alone and that yeah. that's a problem. Yeah, I think so. And I've said on other shows too, like, I think that we don't talk about religion, politics and war. And at some point that started. At some point, people people started telling their kids not to ask these questions, don't have this political debate in public because I don't know it'll get you know out of control, whatever. But like out of out of all of the things, religion, politics, and war maybe should should be what we talk about the most because it's the most disconnected that our whole nation is over those three things. Now yeah, I mean, maybe not always war, but the other two people fight about all the time and since the beginning of time, religion and politics always a fight, but. Why did we stop talking about war? Who said well, it's not okay to talk people, about war? I mean, because if you're sitting at the dinner table, right? You're the only guy in your family. I, I don't know you. I'm just making this. Uh, no, no, I got it. Hypothetical. But if you're the only guy in your family that served, right? Here, I'll give you an example for me. So it's, it's, if someone asks me about a flight and I tell them, yeah, you know, we, we picked up these bodies that, uh, the, insurgents let us know where they were and they've been buried in shallow graves for three weeks and now we got them in the back of the aircraft and i go man it really stunk you know and it really really was stinky yeah and blah and it was you know blah 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 i mean the average per you know that was a reality that day for me right but the average person like oh my god why are we talking about something so horrible you know it's yeah. just not done right now i'm not saying you're wrong but I'm saying, is it right? I don't know if it's right to jam it down their throat for people. Who Look, there's some. People no, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying like at some point, though, somebody said um, we don't talk about these things. And so generally people stopped asking veterans questions on, on a real side. Now, maybe they stopped asking people questions because veterans were like, oh, fuck you. Or, you know, you don't know what it's like. You know, maybe well, there was a little bit of that. They have this stereotype I, I, hundreds of times. I've had people like they the way they deal with me is they think I'm some sort of damaged goods. Mm. They don't know anything about me. They don't mm -hmm. know. I, so as an actor, right? I can say two things. I can say one, that's a group generally that completely different background of lifestyle. Maybe not background, but certainly different lifestyle than I've right? Mm -hmm. However, I've run into a lot of veterans in that group too. So maybe but the ones that don't know anything about the military don't they'll ask me things and they're very tentative like 
they think, well, if I ask him this, is he going to lose his temper? Well, that's my, yeah, yeah. Why do people think that? Whatever you want. I don't care. I'm not going to get upset. You know, like the example, you get, I've been asked many times, have you ever killed anybody? I'm like, nah, I never killed anybody. I said, I've had a hand in killing some people. Mm -hmm. I made a couple Mm -hmm. of radio calls. And after that, some people disappeared, (laughs) you know? I'm like, I've made a call to an AC-130 and I made some bad men go away. I said, but uh, no, but it's a stupid question, you know, because what do you think war is? Like My thing is when I get frustrated when people are like, well, why are we doing this? And I saw this and I'm like, you understand war is extreme violence. It isn't there. Yes, there's rules per se, but at the end of the day, kill these motherfuckers so that they don't hurt you or your friends, period, mm-hmm. end of story. Mm-hmm. You know what people freak out about? I, I, how many people don't get this? When I tell people, I, we're not fighting for the flag. Nobody's going to apple pie, mom, remember 9-11, blah, 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 all out of the bullshit. You know what you're fighting for? Your homies, mm-hmm. period, mm-hmm. end of story. They don't get that. What do you mean? I'm like, it's just your unit. It's just the people... Well, because when you get on the ground, that's all you have. That's what they or, don't know. Or the job is like people like, oh. I'm like, you know, I'm like, there's a guy. They're like, what makes you go out there? I'm like, because if I don't go, there's a guy out there who's going to die. Hmm. Right. Yes, I'm scared. Yes, I'd rather not go. But if I don't go, how, how dare I not go when that guy's already out there in the shit? If not how me, then who? Well, you got you got guys to go I'm after. Right. Yeah, you, know you got I mean? guys to go after, absolutely. It's, it's like, so it's just, I, you know, war is like an alternate universe. Like, I, it, it is. Like, you're there and you're disconnected from the real world, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. That's, how I guess, why Vietnam, they say going back to the world or whatever. Because it, you are, you're disconnected, like, it, and people go, why would you like it? I said, because sometimes it was simple. My bucket oh, list was don't easy. get killed today. Yeah. Eat. Sleep, work out. I told someone, I said, if I didn't have a family, I'd have my wife and kids who I love dear, but I was a single dude. You told me I can get laid once a week. I'd never go home. Yeah, yeah. Never go home because my life is simple. War was was easy. A lot of grunts will say the same thing. They'll say, well, like the way I felt, like I come back home and it's like max anxiety and it's bills and it's schedules and it's what do the kids have and it's what's the wife's schedule and where do we want to eat becomes an issue. And like... At war, it was like, protect my friends, kill the enemy, keep my squad as good as we can, and inflict as much damage on on the other side as we possibly can to bring him to his knees. And if I just do those things, everything's fine. And I don't, there's no worry. It's not, it's not about what are we eating tonight, whatever the fuck they feed us. It's not about, are the bills paid? The bills don't even exist anymore to me. It's not in this world. She would, you know, be bitching me about something. I said, baby, I can't do nothing. There's mm-hmm. money in the bank. Take care of it. I'm out here trying not to, you know, I mean, and and I understand why the wives get frustrated. They they think we're out here fucking off. <laughs> you know, they Well, they, they, they don't know what we're doing, so they know that they're right. feeling it completely on themselves. You know, yeah. Like, this t-shirt I'm wearing is like literally encompasses everything. You know, you see guys that have these t-shirts, you know, recon or this or that, range uh, Mine is Wen's Chow, and it's got a knife and fork cross. And that, I mean, because that to me is like, that was a Wen's Chow. Chow Chow. The simplicity of it. You know, I joke, I said, what was it? My bucket list was don't get killed. That was my bucket list for the day, right? How 
it that is liberating from the life we lead normal mm-hmm. and and there's we're also uh, man i'm a i think it's a primal thing like men from cavemen on were bred to fucking take a club and club this other motherfucker i'm sorry that people think we've evolved out of that i think some men right because i think it's almost i think it's archetypical i think if your archetype is that you're going to be a protector then well you don't really have an option i think you're going to be a protector and if your archetype is that you're going to be a baker and a nurturer then i think you're going to be that but when talking to our uh community of people our archetype is the protector archetype and if we're not doing that i don't think we feel right you know I'm a huge fan of podcasts. Right? I listen to all these podcasts. Ryan's, I listen to all, you know. And when I listen to these guys' story, it's the same as mine, even though our backgrounds are different. I don't know if it's a, something was in me from the time I was young mm. that said, I am drawn to this mm-hmm. profession. Mm-hmm. Right? None of my friends that I grew up, well, I mean, a couple of my buddy Chris was in the Marines. Now he was a fireman. So yeah, he was built for that too. But he's but few and far between percentage wise. Firefighter, he's third generation firefighter too. But I mean, but none of my friends, you know, wanted to do wanted any part of that, right? Mm-hmm. But for me, I don't know. It was just something that was in me that I was always just drawn to, right? So I agree. I don't know if it's a gene. I don't know what it is, but so, but it's primal. So. You know, we're like, war is bad, and it is bad. It's man's, I struggle with the fact that war is man's worst endeavor, and I was kind of good at it. And I struggle with that a little bit, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's primal. Men, we're meant to be out here, and, and we've convinced ourselves that we, we've evolved out of violence, live in a society where they try to ridicule people. You know, I grew up with a single mom. My, I joke, my mom taught me how to be a man. You know what I mean? I watched her go to work every fucking day. Mm-hmm, Rage, mm-hmm. not sick, not sick to make sure we were covered. You know, so, but there's, it's sort of primal. Like we provide, we protect, we do this. I'm not saying I'm a tough guy, but I'm, I, I believe in the roles of a man, man. And yeah. I think that's part of it. So when we, some of us get in that environment, like people go like, did you hate it? I'm like, no, I love it. Mm-hmm. And again, I struggled with that. Eventually, when I came to grips and said, no, I like flying in combat, it was like a fucking weight off my shoulders. Because mm-hmm. I was like, I shouldn't have liked it, but I like it. You know, we get a scramble and I get excited. I'm like, right, let's go knock this out. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was terrified sometimes. I'm not going to lie, but that I have days, I have at least three or four days that I remember where I was in Iraq and Afghanistan and I remember one specific, we were coming back from a mission, we were covering a raid, the uh, Rangers were raiding uh, a joint and we were, you know, we were supporting them. And uh, you know, we get back to Balad, the sun's coming up. Um, 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 you know, I'm safe in my M4, putting it in the truck. What? And I look over and the little birds are flying right by, right? Then the, the, the 60s with the shooters come in and land, they land, right? And you know, you know, like all the shooters got their legs hanging out, you know, and you're fucking just waving at them. And then they land and they're coming out. They got some fucking prisoner, and the dogs trying to rip the prisoner's feet off, and they're pushing them. And and it's the, the sun's coming up, and I'm like, there's no place I'd rather be in the world right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right here, right now. 
you know, and, and, and people go like, that's crazy. I'm like, they've never been I, there. I'm like, and I have three or four of those moments, you know, just like I had moments where I was like, God, you know, guys make fun of me. I, my, before my first combat mission, I prayed and they go, what'd you pray for? And I said, I just asked God to not let me be a pussy and not let me fuck up. <laughs> yeah. I said, please, God, don't let me be a pussy. Don't let me fuck up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and the guys laugh, you know, because some of these guys are real religious, you know, yeah, and they're yeah. like, you know, and, and I'm, I was just like, man, I just asked the man upstairs straight out, like, just don't let me fuck shit up. Yeah. You know, and, and, but those are things like the average person thinks you're sort of weird. And that's why me and you can relate. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I can sit with a guy like Ryan and talk about flying and stuff we can relate and the average person like i don't get it man all i you know my father grew up but the thing is i've spoken to world war ii veterans mm -hmm. i've spoken to korea veterans and they all same thing it was they had nightmares and they had all these things but they still thought it was the best fucking time yeah. in their lives like i yeah. spoke to some fucking a uh, fighter pilot from world war ii p-51 mustang pilot it was like it was the greatest and he was, he was this great guy. You know, that's the thing. He's this old guy at the time. He's in his 80s. And you're like, ah, oh, he's an old. He, it was like just talking to one of your buddies. He's like, that was great. We're flying all over Europe. I was going to London, getting late every night. I mean, you know, I don't, I mean, that was, he was like, it was the greatest time of my life. Yeah. And, and he, you know, and then, you know, and we look up to these guys and then they'll come to me and he's like, oh, you helo guys are crazy. I would never do what you do. I'm like, you flew 90 missions over Germany. What are you talking Yes, you about? would. <laughs> you know? I'm like, I'm in awe of these guys and they're acting like I'm some sort of big hero. And I'm like, I didn't fly 30 missions. You know, my friend's dad flew B-17s. He lasted three missions before he was captured. The first two missions, the aircraft was so shot up, they never flew again. On his third mission, he was shot down and became a POW. Oh, my like, God. That's, the, you know, statistically, the odds were against you surviving 30 missions over Germany in the the 8th Air Force lost more people than the entire Marine Corps did in World War II. You know, I mean, mm. craziness. Well, so, let's get back Let's get back uh, to your career a little bit. Um, yeah, so you finish up you – yeah, I know, I know. Uh, so you finish up with um, the Marine Corps. You said you didn't go to flight school with the Marine Corps. How'd that shake nah, out? So I got my commission in the Marine Corps, second lieutenant, went to TBS where all new Marines go, right? And I was very lucky. I, I finished the whole the whole six months. And uh, we just came back from the three-day war, which is kind of like the crucible mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. thing. And uh, they call us into the auditorium called O'Bannon Hall, named after Presley O'Bannon. Mm -hmm. And I'm paraphrasing. They basically go, guys, it sucks to be you. If you're, we have too many pilots in the Marine Corps on all ends of the pipeline, right? Mm -hmm. So... Uh, they gave us a choice. They said, if you drop your air contract, we'll give you any MOS you want, regardless of your standing in the class. Because, uh, you know, you got rated by your peers. So, they were, you know, so based on where you were in the class, had a lot to do with MOS you got. Right. But they said, if you drop your air contract, any MOS you want. So a few guys did that. And they said, the rest of you, you'll, we're going to put you in other MOSs for 18 to 24 months. And, um, you know, fill out your dream sheet, blah, 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 you know, and then uh, at the end of that time, as the as the as the uh, backlog eases up, you'll get your orders for flight school. Mm -hmm. So I had orders to the 7th Truck Battalion, oh, Camp boy. Pendleton, California, right? Needless to say, 
I was not a happy camp. Well, mm-hmm. one of the lieutenants in my class, his dad was a Navy Admiral and he worked at, at Nav Air. Now, as you know, Naval, you know, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Naval Aviation, it's all Naval Aviation, right? So he walks over to his Marine counterpart and goes, hey, what, what's going on? And the guy's like, oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. So my friend's dad goes, well, we're short pilots. Like we're short, like, you know, shows them the graphs, you know, are we're really short. Do you mm-hmm, think mm-hmm. some of these guys would want to come over to the Navy and get right to flight school? And I'm like, well, you know, we'll see what happens. You can go down there and ask, but these are hard charged Marines. They're not going to want to do that, right? Yeah, so, right. So, so long story short, about uh, a week and a half later, these Navy 06s show up, give us their spiel. You can get to flight school right away, blah, 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 blah. Who's interested? Fill out the list. End of story. That afternoon, <laughs> the way TBS is, is set up, you're in a company with four platoons. And your uh, student platoon commander is a captain who's had at least one fleet tour, right? So in my platoon, two of the uh, student platoon commanders were infantry officers and two were aviators. So they each wanted an opportunity to talk to us right as a whole mm-hmm. so the first guy i'll never forget this guy's name his name was captain Lobson. dude looked like a chrome magnon right <laughs> this guy came out of the womb he was only going to be a marine infantry officer right he's been an enlisted guy he's about five nine looked like a gorilla you know square jaw looked like imagine jocko but a little shorter right, right but the right. same mold right says I'll never forget that he goes, I'd rather dig ditches in the Marine Corps than fly airplanes for the Navy. Any of you guys who are considering this are a fucking traitor. And I won't <laughs> have anything to do with you. And he walks out. Right? Uh, and we're all like, I'm like, are we, are we joining the Russian Navy? Like, what's going, you know, like, are we, and are we thinking about, and then the, uh, the next uh, infantry guy comes in completely different guy. It was like an Ivy league guy from Yale real kind of reserve guy, nice guy, you know, but just, he's like, Hey, I'm not going to tell you guys what to do. You got to do what's best for you guys. I wish you the best of luck, whatever you decide you've all worked hard, you know, and you have a right, you know, we'd love to have you in the Marine Corps, but you know, I understand a lot of you work hard, get to flight school. Good luck. He leaves. The two pilots come in together and they go, listen, any of you guys repeat this, we'll deny it. But if you guys don't take this deal, you're fucking stupid. <laughs> they walk out. <laughs> deal. So that kind of made Sold. up my mind for me. Yeah. You know, these guys were both marine helicopter pilots. Everything I wanted to be, right? Yeah. So uh, I had uh, took about three a month or so for the paperwork to come through, maybe a little more. So I had the H&S platoon which was the guys who fixed the range. It was all the blind, sure. crippling, crazy guys. Mm-hmm. Guys pop positive for drugs. It's great because as a new 2LT, I had guys saluting me with their left hand. Just oh, nice. Doing shit, you know, so it was, I had to like, I had to like man up a little bit. You know what I mean? And like not be a candy ass. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, and I, I was a typical dopey lieutenant, like, I'll tell you one of my favorite <laughs> Lieutenant 2LT stories. 
I was the uh, base assistant base duty officer. So basically I'm shadowing this major who was the duty officer for the whole Quantico Marine base. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm in my alphas with my, and I'm under arms, you know, the whole thing. Right. And, uh, He's this, again, these guys back then, you had all these Mustangs. This guy's like a 50-something-year-old major, crusty. Yeah. The, the, the NCO driver's like a staff sergeant, crusty. You know, you can't, these guys are like out of a movie. You know what I mean? And yeah. you're just like, in, for me, I'm just like in awe of these guys. Because I'm like, these are the kind of Marines I want to be, you know? <laughs> so we check everything out on the base. We go to the brig. You do all the duty officer shit. And it's mid-rats. So we show up at mid-rats at the chow hall. And uh, it's packed because you got HMX1 there. And so it's it's pretty busy. Mm -hmm. so I get out of the vehicle. He goes, go ahead and I'll, I'll follow you. You know, we'll be in in a second, right? So I get out of I put my cover on. I, I put my piss cutter on. I'm doing my two-finger thing, checking my gig line. I roll in there, right? And the chow hall is packed. And I'm just walking up and down. I'm like, how you doing, Devil Dog? What's going on, Marine? And I notice everybody's kind of snickering and looking at me and smiling or laughing. I'm like, why's everybody laughing at? Like, what the, you know, what the F's going on? And, you know, unfortunately, I, I drop a lot of F-bombs, even when I'm talking to myself. So yeah. <laughs> what are all these guys laughing at? I'm walking through and I'm I'm trying to be like this cool officer, like I've seen the the grizzled old guys, how they are with the Marines. You know, yeah. you know, you emulate the leaders you want to be like. And so I'm walking through the chow hall, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Finally, this guy in the flight suit goes, hey, hey, sir, can I talk to you for a minute? And I'm like, and I go, I'm like, what you got, devil dog? You know, like that, <laughs> you know, just. And he goes, hey, uh, uh, sir, your cover's on backwards. <laughs> yes. And so yes. then I. I, I fit to, and I see this major and the, the, the staff, they're laughing. I'm like, hey, sir, did you know I had my cover on backwards? He goes, you goddamn right I knew you had your cover on backwards. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. That's your cover. Uh, oh, man, yeah. It was great. But I mean, and then, uh, I don't know, about a month and a half later, I basically got my DD-214 from the Marine Corps, sidestepped over, swore into the Navy as an ensign. A week later, I was in Pensacola. Wow. Pensacola isn't that isn't that year, silly you know? how that works? Yeah, and um, uh, you know, year and a half of flight school later, got got her, you know, ended up selecting helicopters, and ended up flying CH fifty three E's anyway, which is what I wanted to fly in the Marine Corps. Boom! And, yeah, um, got stationed in the Philippines. How was that? Helicopter. I'm sorry. How was the Philippines? Oh man, it was great. Yeah, was I've heard good awesome. stories. It was, yeah, it was uh, free all this nonsense so it was it was the old mill it was a work hard play hard time and you know and then i got married brought my wife over uh i was there about six months by myself then i brought my wife over and my my daughter who i ended up adopting at the time and we you know we lived like kings it was great i loved it it was it we really enjoyed it um you know again being stationed overseas what you make of it i decided right. hey i'm on this cool adventure my wife's my ex-wife was a Navy brat. My father-in-law is a retired Navy master chief. She lived in Africa in Eritrea of all places, which oh, wow. is, you know, um, Soma you know, Somalia and, and uh, you know, I got a picture of her with Haile Selassie because he was a communicator, my father-in-law. So they, there was a big radio station there. Hmm. And um, so she I was worried when she came over to the Philippines, but she was 
you know, we went out in town. She was all used to it from living in Africa. Other wives like, it's dirty, it's this, it's that. She was like, I'm all about this. So we loved it. Great flying, fun. You know, had all the single fun there too that you could have. You know, we don't have to, probably not a place to discuss that, but you know, it's it's great time. Good flying. Came back, uh, was in Norfolk for uh, another three years and then decided, thought I wanted to get out, going to the corporate world. My second Norfolk what, stationed right there in Norfolk? Yeah. Naval okay. Air Station North. Yeah, I was just there. That's crazy. Um, last yeah. week, I, I was I was actually in Virginia Beach, but uh, we had to go yeah, over we there lived for in Virginia Beach. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. lived right near, uh, uh, you know, uh, lived off of Shore Drive. And, okay. And uh, yeah, it was is really cool. Lived near Dam Neck at one point. Yeah. You know, so uh, my neighbor were two SEAL Team Six guys. You hear that? You know. Yeah. It my sounds two like neighbors bomb. were like. They had full beards like you and everything. And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah well, we work in here now. I'm like, didn't I see you the other day when we, when you jumped out of my helicopter? They're like, oh, no, that wasn't us. You know, we'd laugh about that shit all the time. <laughs> you know, but um, got to do some cool stuff. Um, lots of hurricane relief. Yeah. Uh, the Philippines were a little unstable, so I was always flying the Marine Barracks guys from, from okay. uh, QB Point or the Subic Bay Marines into the embassy to to, you know, reinforce the embassy and stuff because it was, Marcos was having some problems back then because people okay. were pissed because Imelda had too many shoes. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, it was uh, it was really cool. And then I did three years in Norfolk, thought I wanted to get out. Started working in the corporate world. I lasted six months before you I realized do? it was a hard, I was a field service support manager for Airborne Express, which used to be a competitor of FedEx okay. and UPS. And um, hated it, was back in New York, hated it. Uh, my wife was back in Virginia. I ended up quitting that job. In the meantime, I still wanted to fly, so I shotgun paperwork out to all the Guard and Reserve units out there. I was actually hoping to get in the Marine uh, 46 squadron. Okay. Uh, but uh, that didn't work out. I ended up getting in the Army Guard on Long Island. It's flying Hueys. Became a W-2. Oh, cool. It was just flying Hueys. This was actually awesome. A lot of fun. And then I uh, started working in the theater business for my buddy, who I grew up with, uh, in ticket sales on Broadway. And that okay. was a great job. It's a union job. Paid very well. Really good job. Got to work a lot of great hit Broadway shows. And um, was a really good job. And I was flying in the Army Guard while doing that but i i didn't think i'd be able to get back into service but I was so at really this point you've like, been in the marine corps marine corps in the navy kind of swung over to the navy ran that contract out flying for them 46s right. and now you're in the army guard flying hueys hueys old hueys vietnam era Hueys. love it all right it so awesome. you've been in three service branches right flown and on multiple platforms that was fun because all the guys were like cops, firemen, lawyers, this. They'd all been in Vietnam, most of them. There was a few youngsters. And so we, I'd go in on a drill week, and plus I'd go in and fly two or three times a week. Mm-hmm. And the guard is a great gig because if you, you get a full day's pay for a half day's work. So if you stay, if you work, after 12 noon, you're getting paid for two days, mm. right? So, you know, you'd always be able to work those really cool drug deals. 
But the cool thing about the guard was you had all these crusty old dudes. So we'd go in and the lieutenant, who had maybe 12 flight hours, would come in and brief. I need you guys to go do this train and the blah, blah, blah. And the, the W3 would be, yes, sir, we'll take care of it. Lieutenant walk out. He'd go, we're not doing it. We're flying <laughs> down to Atlantic City and we're going to go eat at this Chinese buffet I know down there. And it was just always stuff like that. Like in the six years I was there, we did very little tactics. Yeah, and yeah. some of these guys were the best pilots in the world. So they and they all ended up subsequently going back to Iraq anyway. You know, after I was in the Air Force, that unit got activated and went to Iraq and all these guys did fine. But, you know, the most tactical shit we did was fly the cadets at West Point around. or We do our two weeks at Fort Drum and mm -hmm. do stuff. But it was just a lot of fun. Good group of guys. I'm still friends with a lot of the guys. Like I said, a majority of guys were New York City cops and firemen. And um and then there was an opening in the air guard, the the uh, the unit that was, if you've ever seen the movie The Perfect Storm, mm -hmm. right? I know that was that unit, the 106 Rescue Group. And um, I I applied and somehow I caught them when there was an opening. And um, I was accepted and um, ended up knowing all the guys from that Perfect Storm, the guys who survived that were all guys I flew with subsequent. Mm. And... Um, I was, they were training me in-house in the 860 and everything. And then an opportunity to go to the, of the, the schoolhouse in Albuquerque came up and they said, would you be willing to go? It'd be about nine months active duty. And I was like, yeah, heck yeah. And, uh, so I took a leave of absence from my job in the theater and went to Albuquerque and was learning to fly to 60 and all the tactics and all the combat rescue tactics. And then, um, the active duty guys were like, man, the, the Air Force is really short pilots. We got a lot of Army pilots swapping over and, and blah, blah, blah. And then a couple of weeks later, the uh, the Air Force assignments guy, the guy who gives out the assignments to all the uh, Air Force helicopter pilots, was there doing a base visit to talk to guys. So I, uh, I uh, cornered him in the hallway and I'm like, hey, what if I wanted to come back on active duty? And I gave him my background and he's like, yeah, I mean, the guard didn't put you through flight school, so uh, put in a request, and if your boss approves it, um, I'll bring you on for two years. And I did that, and I got two years active duty, September of 98. I went back on active duty, and then uh, about a year and a half into it, I found out I was eligible for the bonus. So I just decided to take the bonus, and, uh, and I stayed, and then I ended up spending almost 14 years in the Air Force flying pedro you know and uh yeah talk to me about that that's one thing i wanted to really speak on because i got to witness that shit with my eyes a lot of times and it was insane i mean listen i missed oh you know obviously a lot of my friends were doing the stuff that you saw coming to help you guys i i flew my two afghanistan tours were very early like i flew an operation anaconda right yeah so talk to me about that i was here at nellis air force base 9 11 happens right I'm on leave actually because my wife at the time had had some back surgery. And I, now I worked in the World Trade Center for my brother in the summers in college. And then when I was a Navy pilot, my mom got sick, had heart surgery, and I did permissive TDY. And the officer selection office for the Navy was in the World Trade Center. So I know that, that place like the back of my head. I've worked there on four separate occasions in my life, right? And, you know, I'm born and raised in Manhattan. So I wake up on 9-11, uh, TV's on. Um, 
And I see, you know, I wake up, I turn on the news that they're talking, oh, a small plane hit. The, and I'm, I'm like, it's clear blue and a million. How did a, how did a plane run into the World Trade Center? And I'm like, I don't know, it doesn't seem right, but they're talking about it. And they're like, it's a small plane. I'm like, that's a pretty big fire for a small plane. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the dark like everybody else. I'm just scratching my head going, well, that's really weird, but whatever. And then all of a sudden, as I'm watching it, I see the other plane. I'm like, oh, that doesn't look good. Boom. Right. I'm like, okay. I, I run downstairs. I tell my wife, I said, turn on the news. She turns it on. She goes, I'm not sending the kids to school. I said, don't. I said, but I think I got to go into work. Mm -hmm, <laughs> I said, I think my leave is about to get canceled. So I said, I'm, I'm rolling into work. Mm -hmm. Took three hours to get to work because of the trap, because the base went to uh, DEFCON 1 or whatever, whatever those gate, those. Uh, Threatcon Delta. Those Threatcons, yeah, those Threatcons were. So, and at the time, my brother was a commodity trader working in the World Trade Center. So they collapsed as I'm sitting in traffic, listening on the radio. And I'm like, shit, I think my brother's dead. You know, I'm like, shit, I'm going to have to tell my mom later, but. I got to get into work right now. <laughs> you know, you know, you compartmentalize like you're just, and uh, luckily my brother called my house to tell me he was okay. So my daughter called me to say, Hey, uncle Stevie's fine. He called and I wasn't worried about my mom. Cause I know she ain't down at the world trade center at night in the morning. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, and I, it, you would get on base. We, they armed the helicopters. It was just a very weird next few days. And then a few mm -hmm. weeks later, we get orders, man. They're like, we're going to Pakistan. And it's like right after the initial invade, you know, right before the initial uh, invasion where they put the SF teams in and stuff, all that was staged out of Pakistan. Mm -hmm. So we went to Jacobabad, Pakistan. And then um, right after the Marines turned Kandahar over to the 101st, they told us to go up to Kandahar, me and about 10 folks to set up ops up there. Mm -hmm. And we went up there and set up our ops, started flying a few missions, started hearing about this Operation Anaconda. My boss was all very linked in. Uh, all my bosses had been in Air Force Special Operations, so they all were linked in all the spec task force dagger and all these task forces. So we were figuring out what was going on. And then Anaconda kicked off. We weren't even part of it. We weren't in the planning. We had nothing to do with it. Now, now for, for people that are listening, can you just give like an overview of what that what that op was about? Yeah. So in the initial stages of the after we invaded Afghanistan initially, took over Kandahar, Camp Rhino. The plan was to do this sort of enveloping operation on the large elements of the Taliban in the in the um, in the Hindu Kush and in the. Uh, in the Shai Khat Valley, right? Which is about halfway up from Kandahar to Bagram on the east side of that, that main valley that goes up Afghanistan in the Shai Khat Valley and the Coast Guard there's there, right? And um, so it was this plan, it was honestly a shitty plan, but they were gonna infill the army, the special ops guys were in the hills, and of course the blocking force was gonna be the local forces, okay. right? Like we didn't learn our lesson in Torah Bar doing that, right? But so they infill and they told all the NGOs to get out of there and to leave because there was a lot of NGOs there doing stuff. And and so they knew we were coming, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they 
there was no already no no fire support plan they infill 101st and the 10th mountain into the low ground the enemy has all the high ground long story short we start getting our asses handed to us pretty quick right all the the, the army apaches they're doing those european tactics hover t- and they're getting the shit shot out of them and and it was an operation to to basically destroy the large force Taliban elements and uh, try to kind of put an end to everything. Mm. And uh, just didn't work out too well initially. And so somehow- You say you weren't initially on it. How were you guys like staged as a react or how'd that work out? We were at at, uh, Kandahar, right? And we were just set, we had just really set up our operations and our, our main mission was still to be rescued for the fighters in case a fighter went down, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was really, and it took a long time for the Air Force to get out of the mindset of only leaving us for that and using us for other stuff. But things started getting really bad. And so we got scrambled up to a FARP, FARP, Texaco, which was off to the west of where the battle was going on. We're sitting up there all day. And uh, um, now FARP's like a forward reloading or rearming refueling point, right? So there we go. There were two CH 47s there that were filled with gas. All the Apaches were coming back all shot up and shit. And I'm just sitting there going, fuck, you know, this is like you're like, oh shit, this is real. The real one, yeah. Because that was that was first combat for me. I'm 40 years old, you know, and uh, I was like, damn. Look at, imagine, I remember thinking, going, man, if you do that to this helicopter, imagine what it'll do to my face, mm-hmm. you know, or just, you know, and you just, it's, you're all like, you're just that feeling in your stomach and you're like, oh shit, this is real. Yeah. And then they're like, okay, we're not going to need you guys. You can head back to Kandahar. And then literally we're running up and we get a call on the radio. Hey, we, there's these wounded guys and we've been trying to get them out all day and all the aircraft are getting shot off the LZ and, and we can't get them out. And it's night wondering you guys have a FLIR and we had done some rescues previously because of the FLIR. They're like, would you guys be willing to give it a shot? So my flight lead, Tom Cahill is like, yeah, we shut down, we briefed it up. Tom, who got this, I was his co-pilot. He got the silver star that night. This is like a movie moment. He goes, Hey boys, he calls us all 12 of us from the two aircraft. He goes, I just want you guys to know if we go do this, there's a good chance we're all going to get fucked up. Does anybody have a problem? I remember I'm in the back. I'm going, I kind of do have a problem, but <laughs> nobody, you know, but, you know, but my buddy Scarecrow, one of the PJs, he's like, fuck no, let's go. And I'm like, well, I guess I can't be a pussy. So I guess I don't have a problem. That's right. That's right. So, so we end up going and the mission is a shit show from day one. I didn't know this, but the JTAC was not co-located with the wounded guys. He was in a talk somewhere and we're getting all kinds of conflicting information. And again, you know, it's 22 years since that night. Right. Hmm. But uh, just the fog of war fits the bill the best. We just we we landed in one LZ. We got more. Right, we're just all right. Let's get out of here. We landed another LZ. These tent mountain guys jump on, right? And the P, all I was sitting there, and the PJs goes, "Hey, these ain't the guys, sir. These are just some tent mountain snuffies who think we're expelling them." And I'm like, "Shit, well, they gotta go." 
right? Yeah. Now my feet, it's like out of a pocket. Remember the scene in Apocalypse Now where the guy's like, I'm not going? Yeah. Right? Well, now my PJ's got a man. I mean, we laugh now, but I felt kind of bad. My PJ's got to manhandle these guys and basically throw them off the helicopter, right? Mm-hmm. So we take off. Then we land in another LZ and we start getting lit up in that LZ. So we leave. We're plat- Now we're bingo fuel and we all agree we're not going to leave till we find these guys, right? We finally find the right LZ. It's all these. Buzzsaws. Remember those little, those truck, uh, sort of lights, the diamond-shaped lights that flickered that guys would just put on their lapels. They yeah, yeah, yeah. Little lights. So there's all these lights going off, and finally we see a buzzsaw, right? And we go, and so we land in the LZ. We get these guys. We have whole blood on our aircraft, so we have to transfer that to the other aircraft. We each get one of the wounded guys. We take off. We land back at Bagram with eight minutes of gas. Oh, wow. Right? And um, and then, interestingly enough, as we're coming into Bagram, we hear Razor 01 and Razor 02 taxiing out. Those are the Roberts Ridge guys, right? Because it's March 3rd and March 2nd. I think that happened March 3rd. It might be the dates might be a little whack, but like we hear them going out. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, my buddy who came over from the Army was a 160th guy, Tom. Sore guy. Who came over to the Air Force. He's on the radio and he's like, hey, Razor NSDQ. And they're like, all right, NSDQ, brother, which means Night Stalkers don't quit, right? And he's just giving. And then we roll back to Kandahar, swap aircraft hot with another crew who goes back to the farm. So we're back at Kandahar with no aircraft. So we hit the rack, just kind of debrief everything, mm-hmm. talking to my friend John, who had flown a similar mission the night before. His mission's on video. You can see all the RPGs like, explode next to his aircraft and i remember seeing him that night he was brushing his teeth and i'm like shit i hope if i come back from getting shot up like that i hope i can be as cool and brush my teeth and i remember <laughs> that night going i'm gonna go brush my teeth i just survived this shit right and um we go to sleep and then they come in the next morning scramble 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 so we get up we're putting on our flight suit i'm grabbing my weapons and we're like wait we don't have any weapons we don't have any helicopters yeah what are we scrambling to and they're like, and then the, the opso comes in. He goes, you're running on a, a C-130. Um, we're going to fly up to to, to uh, the FARP and land up there. And uh, you're going to hot offload and you'll take the aircraft over from these guys because these two aircraft got shot down. You know, talking about the Roberts Ridge aircraft. Mm-hmm. And um, long story short, uh, my buddy Ed, who had taken the aircraft from me the night before, he was there and he wanted to try to get in there, but it, they just won't let the helicopters go in there because it was so bad. Mm-hmm. That's probably the right decision. You know what I mean? But he was just really pissed because he was like, I can get in there and at least get a couple of wounded guys out, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so we, we basically were there for that. And, and then um, that was that. And then I uh, flew, you know, a few more missions here or there. And then I uh, came back in April of 2002. So, came home and then I did another Afghanistan rotation after that. And then the rest of my rotations, I did two Afghanistan and five Iraq rotations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, same kind of stuff. Just, I got to fly some good missions. I wish I got to do the Pedro stuff in Afghanistan. I was supposed to go. And then my boss, I, I was an attached pilot. I mean, I was working at higher headquarters and I had, 
volunteered to go with a guard unit that was going and I was all set to go with them. And then my boss, my old boss said, I need you to go with us a couple of months later. So he didn't let me go with them. And we were going Iraq, not Afghanistan. Cause I wanted to go do that medevac mission with the pit. Cause I mean, the guys who did it loved it. And, oh, I'm uh, telling you what, those guys, those guys were something else. There was, um, like we had guys go down a lot, obviously there in the beginning, either, either host nation or, or partner, you know, partner force or us. And, um, and every single time we had a guy go down, you, we call in a medevac, get the nine lineup, and these guys would come in. And, and you know, when we're hot LZ or when we're engaged, they're always flying with an escort. And that escort would come in first, you know, do their thing. But the the uh, the Blackhawks or whatever bird it was that they were flying, the Pedro unit, they would turn that that first bird in would turn that thing almost like ninety degrees to the earth, and he's running a loop around the LZ or around where the LZ is going to be at. And I don't know if they're drawing fire or just putting that 50 cal straight down so that they can get some work in or what, but they would do that. And as they're doing that, the actual pickup bird would come right in, swoop yeah, in. Yeah, we have a, if we have a, you know, we have a, a tactic, you know, where the the bird not doing the pickup is providing support for the bird on the ground. Mm-hmm. Plus, we have the escorts, and uh, yeah, I mean. I mean, those run. guys are amazing though. And then and then you'd get on them; they'd land right on the smoke every single time skids smoke right between the skids and uh only one time did i have to carry a guy you know out um personally but i'm i remember having them on they're insane i had him on my back run out there and he just gets off nonchalant like he's at the beach got his little whatever that little thing is he's holding on to (laughs) yeah they always have that (laughs) yeah they're cool man you want to talk about dude you give zero fucks that's them that's them yeah literally zero yeah that's i mean my buddy told me a story. Uh, PJ took a round to the chest in a vest, right? Uh-huh. And they're in the LZ, and 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 my buddy said because he he goes the PJ goes, hey sir, I just took one of the chest. Can we hold up a second? So now the pilot thinks he got shot in the chest, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's like, and then he goes, hey, I just can, can we hold up? I want to see if I can find the round and make a neck or something. Oh, it so stopped it. He's like, my buddy's like, what the fuck are you talking about? He's like, yo, you know, I hit my vest. He's like, no, dude, we got to go. We got to go now. We're not holding on. <laughs> we got to go now, bro. And he ended up finding the round in the aircraft later. But, I mean, just, you know, I've never seen these guys, no matter how crazy, how nuts, I've never seen them hesitate once. No, they're awesome. Um, and, and you, you know, for me, like, just working with people like that is what, what I miss. Mm. And working with the crews and, and um. Like I said, I had a chance. We had an aircraft shot down, uh, and I was home at the time. And uh, we had five guys killed, um, and two of the pilots survived. One survived. Uh, my buddy Dave, unfortunately, didn't. But in my unit, we like to send people from the unit to be with the family, right? We didn't mm-hmm. want, like, the regular. Because the Air Force will send some decazoid, not even a pilot, you know, just. Yep. We're like, no, nah, we're sending guys from our unit. So we had an aircraft shot down. And, my buddy Dave was new ski was in Bethesda. I was a family liaison. So I was there every day and I was running into Marines every day and they'd see my Jolly or Pedro patch. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, literally like, Oh, you got, you know, and they'd be like, sure. You guys come in no matter what. I remember one guy telling me, you guys do these crazy maneuvers. It's so cool. I'm like, listen, man, we're just trying not to run into each other. You know, Hell but, yeah. they were all like real. They would come up to me. Like, um, it, it was really amazing. The commandant of the Marine Corps, 
actually came and visited. They gave him a coin because when they found out a Pedro was there, he came in and, and visited Dave's family and oh, they yeah. gave them a, a coin because all of, you know, Marines, we'd be getting in and out. And um, yeah, I mean, I was pretty special. I was really, that was a good relationship. And I, I mean, whenever someone's in the green zone and they're not sure like about what I did or whatever, I go, hey, did you know the call sign Pedro? And they go, yeah. And I'm like, I was a Pedro. And honestly, like that, that's pretty much that's instant credibility. Like, right oh, there. amongst Marines, at least of yeah, my like, of my generation of Marines, you say yeah, that, it's and like it's like, yep, credibility. So, yep. Um, yeah, I mean, it, flying Air Force Combat Rescue was great. It was a great. I, I, it took a while to adjust to the Air Force because it was so non-military, and you know, you could goof on the Navy all you want. The Navy's the military. Mm. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, I know that there's a. No, no, no. I've never heard that. I want you to I want you to go a little deeper into that. Because there's constant knocking. And yes, a sailor on a ship's living a different life than a marine grunt on a ship or mm-hmm. but you know, the Navy is about fighting. You know, they just fight with ships and naval mm-hmm. aviation, you know, I mean, it there there is a warfighter mentality in the Navy from the leadership and while a Navy chief and a Marine gunny may look a little different, you know what I mean? That, that Navy chief may have a little bit of a belly or whatever. They lead the same way. You know, as, hmm. I mean, in the Philippines, you know, out of all these youngsters come over, you know, they, you know, and it's comical, but it's not because you're trying to keep the kid from making a mistake. And they come over there and they get these kids who never had a girlfriend in high school or whatever. And now they're, you know, got this beautiful Filipino girl who's just treating them like a king and, they, you know, they don't know what to do with themselves. And, mm-hmm. you know, now that, you know, three months later, like, oh, sure, I, I want to get married, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and you're just like, uh, you sure this is what you want? Yeah. You know, and I usually call the chief in and I'd be like, chief, I'm going to lunch. You know, can you counsel this young sailor on this? And I'd be like, we're not doing weddings today. <laughs> I don't want to see any bruises, just counts, you know, but they operated the same way, you know, and, and, yeah. um, it's just different. You know, the Navy's different from the Marine Corps, but, and, but, you know, the Air Force is where it gets a little different. And I'm not slamming the Air Force because they're good at what they do, but the Air Force, especially, I think I'm being generous when I say 15% of the Air Force will ever hear a shot fired in that. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Changed a little bit in the war because you had guys driving convoys and, individual augmentation to army and marine and air force and you know that the air force security guys were outside the wire and eod guys and so but still i I think i'm being generous so and uh there was a particular air force chief of staff that kind of went from a leadership to management sort of mentality and corporate versus mentality so the war was the best thing that ever happened to the air force in a long time but it was just different. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we had a lot of internal struggles with the Air Force because I, I had colonels come up to us and go, the Air Force has helicopters? You know, so your own parent organization doesn't even know what you do. Like, mm-hmm. no one knew what we did. Um, sure, sure. So it, it'd be really frustrating at times. But I was in the fight part of the Air Force, and, you know, we did a good job, and, and there's lots of people in the Air Force, combat controllers, PJs, TACPs, 
yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, EOD guys who are in there and, and get in the fight, you know. Yeah, and, there's, and, there's things and, that I didn't even know uh, until I started doing this podcast, actually. Uh, one of my buddies that was in third group, Johnny Glenn, uh, he's like, oh, you got to you gotta get this Air Force cat. He was on my team. And I'm like, what? And he's like, oh, yeah, he's uh, he was like their air controller. He's like JTAC, basically. Yeah, TAC-T, yeah. yeah. And he taught me all about it. Like, I had him on the show, and he's like, oh, yeah. And I had no clue the Air Force had that. Had no clue. Yeah. And so. Yeah, these guys live. They live with the Army. You know, they're. Or Marines. They're he he supported Raider yeah, Battalion I mean, and SF and everybody. Yeah, I mean, so you, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and, and again, you know, the aviator, you know, the, the pilots in the Air Force are doing a pilot thing. And, you know, there's nobody who doesn't love an A-10, you know, mm, so an that's A-10 a fact. pilot, you know, an A-10 pilot. The stick man. Know, he's, he's he's cool no matter where he's, you know, he could be in a bunch of SEALs, a bunch of recon, a bunch of infantry grunts. He's the man because they've all, they've all had to see him come in and help out. So, you know, there's, but... It's, it's still not a big community, very small. It's a different mentality because there's a lot of people in the Air Force that will never I mean, even even at Balad, like they had like karaoke like you know, oh, we'd wow. be on alert, we'd go to the green bean and get a coffee. And it's it's so different even for you. Like I'm gonna be honest, we lived really good. Mm-hmm. I mean so that's good. Time, I, I ain't got nothing bad time, to say about that. The only time we lived austere was our first Afghanistan deployment at Kandahar and what was kind of funny about that is so we had a lot of ex-army pilots and me and a few others so when we were burning our own shit the only guys who knew field sanitation were the officers right so literally for the first two weeks you had captains and lieutenants stirring shit and it took about two weeks before one of us realized why don't we give a fucking class so we don't have to do this and then we grabbed a couple of the Enlisted maintenance guys and goes, hey, here. How you so burn that's shit. where it started, eh? Hey? Yeah, we're like, here's here's how you burn shit, and here's what you do, and now you guys have it, not us. Because yeah. literally, like, I I remember like me and my buddy standing around stirring it and going, and you see two E twos walking by. Hey, how's it going, sir? We're like, what is wrong with this picture? Right? Fuck now? are we doing? Like, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. And so, but um. You know, it was pretty austere. We're eating MREs and, you know, mermites and stuff. But then, you know, we got to the bigger bases and we lived pretty good and get a cappuccino at night. Like, I still freak out at, like, the green bean where you have all these heavily armed dudes. Remember these British SAS dudes literally just back from a raid murdering people. And they're like, can I have a latte, please? And it was like, <laughs> you cannot make this shit up, bro. I love you it. You can't make this shit up, you know? And I'm like, it's... It was wild, but we lived pretty good. But, you know, the Air Force had karaoke night and we had theme night and, you know, we had great chow. And, but, but, you know, so I, I mean, and we used to like, what we did was we, we'd fly around with all, all our shit that we compiled of stuff from any serviceman and we'd fly out the fobs and just kick it out of the helicopter. Um, oh, yeah. once, you know, we, cause we knew you guys, it was horrible the way the guys lived, you know? So we always felt we'd bring our Maxim magazines and our Victoria's Secret. Yes. Just any key dunk we had. <laughs> when we did a full mission. My, my buddy's cousin was a rifle platoon commander and his platoon had the perimeter at Al-Assad Air Base. Okay. So we planned a training mission. We had all these Otis Spunk of my muffins. We had like boxes and boxes of them. We were sick of them, right? So we're like, 
we'll fly out there and we'll just kick these out to these Marines. And we'll just, so we actually flew a time on target mission, came to a hover over their position, just kicked out all these boxes of Otis Spunker, my, my muffins. Like you'd see them hitting guys in the head. And then we just left, you know? <laughs> and the next day, like my, my buddy's cousin got in touch with him, was like, that, my boys love that. Thank you. That's you know, awesome. they just loved it. But I mean, we lived good, but the job was great. And it was, you know, I'm very lucky, man. I, I don't want to keep you all night. Like I've had an interesting and highly unusual and highly undistinguished career. But uh, it was a lot of fun, man, and I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It allows me to to connect and be with people like yourself, and um, yeah, man, it, it just was great. No, you have had it. You've it's a it's an amazing career. I've never, I don't know if I've ever met anybody that served in as many branches as you have. Um, I think that's definitely a first for me. But so, you do. You have a you have a well distinguished. Uh, decorated career flying helicopters for multiple branches. And um, I want to be honest with you right now, you're frozen on my screen. Okay, man. Thank you. It's yeah. my pleasure to be on your show, bro. I, I appreciate it very much. Yeah, so uh, so Yogi, uh, I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you being um, understanding with my medical uh, medical stuff that came up that kind of prevented us a couple weeks ago from, from going live. But I'm glad we did it. I'm glad we put it down. And... Um, Give me a little bit of time and I'll get this out to the people. For all you guys that, uh, that are out there in the audience, if you took even one thing away from this, away from this recording or uh, this episode, I ask that you just don't be selfish with the information. Share it out to the people that can take something from it. And they can take, you know, 40 years of experience from people like Yogi, putting their, uh, putting themselves out there, putting their stories out there. And maybe uh, you can take something and learn something from it, whether that's learn something good that he said. Oh, I got you back. And... Um, if it's not something good that he said, maybe it's something that he fucked up and you can learn how not to do that. And that's another great thing that comes from these that. comes from these episodes. So again, sir, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time. Appreciate the understanding. No, man, my pleasure. It was great to talk to you. I'm glad we got it done. I'm more than anything glad you're doing well and uh, glad we got to meet each other. And, uh, you know, I hope to stay in touch with you, man. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I'm definitely, uh, you know, uh, like I said, I struggle. And I know people who struggle, and I've worked hard post-military to in the suicide prevention space, mm -hmm. and uh, other and you know I'm I'm more I'm more than willing to help and uh, help guys with their transition because uh, it, it can be difficult, and it's not just the east side of the house. Those yeah. have just a difficult time, you know. Yep. And uh, leaving that leaving the military is tough sometimes. It takes a while to just. Uh, just, Come to grips with it, just get right yeah just feel right about yeah. it absolutely and what was the organization you're you're part of so again? i was involved i'm i'm part of a group called merging vets and players started by jay glazer from uh, fox nfl shout out Boyer, who was a green beret and played for the seahawks mm -hmm. um uh focuses on combat veterans and professional athletes bringing them together and working with each other to help those those transitions, I didn't know this, but the NFL has a huge suicide rate post-career-wise. Yeah, so um, real quick before we get off here, just leading into something else for the audience and for you, I actually have um, an NFL player that actually coaches that exact same stuff, Dominic Williams. Um, I'm interviewing him on Monday, Monday evening, okay. and he's going to talk about a lot of that same issue, how the sports – 
um, athlete, professional athletes get to that shelf life and it's usually shorter than ours. Uh, and then they have to, he He may may, be, he may or may not be involved with MVP. You know, I mean, we have a lot of, yeah, there's like uh, about eight chapters all over the country. Okay. Um, I've been in the Vegas chapter for about four and a half, five years now. Um, it's a great organization. And I also, you as a Marine, just, I organized the first Silkies hike here in Vegas. Yes, yes. Yes, I I love them. I try to go to at least one hike a year. Um, I've been to the New, you know, I've been to the New York one. uh, Need to get down here to that Camp Lejeune one, baby. We'll link it up. I I, I try to go to the Vegas one. I'm working this year, so I may go to the New York one in August. But I try to go one a year. um, And uh, it was really cool to organize the first one here in Vegas. And yeah, that's awesome. Now we're keeping that going. Um, cause I, I love really the like people at Irreverent Warriors. Well. Those are, yeah, yeah those I mean, are great it's, people. It's, it's, uh, so i it's really been cool to be involved in both those organizations. Yeah. I lost a lot of friends to suicide as I'm, I'm sure. sure we have. And, and, you know, I got lucky. I never had those dark thoughts. I did struggle, but not to that level. Mm. And, um, you know, everybody I lost to suicide was a straight board. I mean, guys, I looked up to guys. Um, like my, you know, my buddy, Tom Cahill, I mean, he got the silver star that night, with me, you know, and, um, just looked up to these guys. They were, you know, better, braver, better pilots, just dudes, even though a lot of them were younger than me in age, I just looked up to them. And then epidemic, know, and, man. And, and, and then to see that happen, you know, it just breaks my heart, you know, and, and, and one thing I do believe, and I'll let you go after this is people who serve this country that doesn't necessarily have to be in combat. You raised your right hand. I don't care if you play cards on a ship off the coast or wherever, or we're kicking doors down with, uh, you know, um, cat and everything in between. You deserve to live a happy, good life. Mm-hmm. And you deserve to live. To you deserve to live. Right. And and anything I can do to help guys realize that, that they have worth, that there's no reason to take that drastic a step, and that uh, no matter how bad it is, you know, through the help of the man upstairs and everything else, you know, we can come through these things. That's right. And, uh, and, and the main thing is to just be with our brothers and sisters who are probably the, the number one tool that I hope us get through. That's a fact. So, you know, that that's it. And, and I've been blessed to be with those organizations, you know, look them up. Uh, uh, you know, they, they'd be good people to get on the podcast. We get guys like Nate Boyer on the show and things like that. Uh, uh, they can reach, a, a, they got huge platforms and can help a lot of veterans. Right on. Well, you guys heard it there. We're going to leave it there with Yogi. And we will, uh, we'll see you guys next time on Choices Not Chances. Well, that concludes this episode. Thanks for listening to Choices Not Chances podcast. Please share, like, and subscribe wherever you listen or watch our podcast. You can also follow us on social media at Choices Not Chances podcast. Thanks and have a great day. Louisiana Gun Shop, your firearm headquarters. Specializing in concealed carry guns, ammo, and training, you can get your Louisiana permit with us. Also, a large selection of AR-15s, or if you are that build-it-yourself type of guy or gal, we have all the parts to build and customize your own AR-15. Glock, Sig, Taurus, Ruger, we have all the brands, both in the store or at louisianagunshop.com. Not too far. You're marking the building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's a funny. Yeah. Funny.